backroom politics. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. That's Tuesday, so that means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live from a random gathering all over the eastern seaboard and actually on the western seaboard. Uh, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. I am broadcasting from Florida's Space Coast after a very successful orbital ATK launch from Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station with uh, a memorial to John Glenn on board uh, that capsule. So congratulations to the team from Orbital ATK on a successful launch. But I am broadcasting live from the Space Coast of Florida. Joining me as they do every Monday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Justin, uh, doing very well. I'm happy to know that I know what day it is, and it's Tuesday. It is Tuesday. It is definitely <laughs> Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Also joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Democratic political operative who also worked for Joe Biden for a time. He is the bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He's the man that we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, how are you, sir? I am doing well, Justin. I am just glad that I'm not having any chocolate cake that might distract me from other important topics. Now you see, you see, you had you're taking away all the good comic stuff, Dan. I, I, you got we got to watch. It, it, it was either that I figured you, you were going to say that, or at least you're not getting dragged off a United flight. <laughs> but speaking of flights, joining us, I believe, is this the man that we know as Secretary Alan Moore? It is. Hey. Joining us from the Golden State on the West Coast, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who has served at last count four presidents. He is uh, a longtime Senate staffer, a longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished and apparently well-traveled fellow from uh, the Stimson Center. He is the man that we know as Alan Moore. Alan, how is the Golden State House, California? It is great. It is great. I get to play grandfather, and today I spent a couple hours at a special Monet exhibit while my while my grandchildren were at uh, preschool. So all is good. You know. You know what, Alan? The great thing about having you on the show is you still are the most cultured human being on the show. <laughs> yeah, but look at the competition. It, 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 very well. Very well put. Hey, we have got a lot to talk about, obviously. Uh, We're going to start off with the rising tensions mounting on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, For those who have not seen what is going on, uh, the leader of North Korea and that little hermitage they call a country, uh, Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, over the weekend, celebrated his grandfather's 105th birthday anniversary, with a stellar showing of military might and troop movements. What caught several Western intelligence agencies by surprise was the fact that one of the pieces of artillery that he pulled out was, in fact, a mobile intercontinental ballistic missile silo. Still no confirmation on whether the actual missile was in said silo or even operational, but it does ratchet up the tension on the Korean Peninsula immensely. Uh, During this time, Vice President uh, Mike Pence has done a Far East tour, including meeting with the acting leadership in South Korea. 
as well as meeting with Japanese political leaders, uh, including uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe, uh, giving them the 100% support of the U.S. government that we are behind them and that we will not let North Korea take aggressive actions. However, it does bring up the fact that there is a quiet and delicate balance being measured out by all in the Defense Department, the State Department, and in the White House. Let me start with you, Alan Moore. Uh, This is a very, very delicate situation right now. Uh, what, What ammo, for lack of a better term, or what positioning does Vice President Pence have by going to North Korea, Japan, and the other allies there in the Far East that, I mean, can we play the diplomatic card, or is military... Uh, military force inevitable at this point. Well, I don't think anything is inevitable. We're we're not sure exactly what this what this guy is going to do. We're not sure uh, all that he has in his arsenal. He certainly talks uh, very aggressively and assertively. Talks about war with America. Um, talks about uh, more nuclear weapons tests, more ballistic missile tests. Um, we don't know whether he has the capacity to deliver a weapon via missile uh, to uh, to America or, for that matter, around the region. But we can't assume that he doesn't. Um, we 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 don't know. We don't have very good intelligence with that country. The important thing is for the rest of uh, uh, that region and the rest of the world, for that matter, to be united uh it is curious that with all the negative talk that uh, through the campaign that uh, that president now president trump uh, had towards the chinese in terms of being currency manipulators in terms of eating our lunch on trade matters and the need to renegotiate trade deals um he and uh and the chinese president got along swimmingly he has now said that he does not intend to label China uh, a, a currency manipulator because and, he's been schooled on the subject. And we're and, going to talk uh, about and, that. We're going to talk about that in the, well, in the following and, second. And, and but one, I know it ties in. Well, one has to wonder whether the the concerns about North Korea were the unifying factor between the two that sort of dwarf everything else. China makes North Korea possible financially. Right. It has taken some moves in the last couple of months uh, that are that are harmful to North Korea's economic interests, uh, principally its its reduction in the amount of North Korean coal that China right. will will right. will buy. So it all it, it all speaks to some unification and the need to 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 line up allies, and that seems to be underway. Admiral Ken, you worked as a naval officer and as a senior naval officer in some instances, uh, operations in the Korean Peninsula and in what we know as PAC area, the Pacific area for uh, DOD and the U.S. Navy. With, with your understanding and your background, how real is the North Korean military? You know, we've heard this million-man military that could be the strongest military in the region. Uh, we've also heard that, you know, if we did use military, uh, if we did use military force, that we would walk all over them, that it's a cardboard box. What's the reality? So, um, 
specifically, I did I did five. I participated in five exercises that were at one time known as Ultra Focus Lens (UFL). Uh, the focus of UFL uh, was to game the defense of South Korea from a large communist neighbor immediately to their north. Uh, they shall remain nameless. How's that? Um, so you'll be, you'll be happy to know that over the 10 years that I participated in, in the, those exercises, we won every time. That's the good news. The bad news is that South Korea, as it exists today, would exist no more. And they don't need, they don't need to drop a nuke. Um, uh, every bit of South Korea from the area right around the militarized zone to as far south as Chinhae, which is the southernmost point, uh, southernmost naval base uh, and uh, southernmost point of the uh, of the peninsula, is within range of their artillery. They would rain down lead for uh, days, uh, decimating what was ever left of uh, the, the cities that their that their their, uh, their their terrorist cells weren't able to uh, to to, uh, to impact. Yeah, we we, we know that they've got people on the ground, they've been able to infiltrate South Korea, and there are folks uh, looking to carry out havoc and, mis- and uh, misdeeds uh, once the hot- hostilities start. So, Ken, does, you know, Ken, let me just jump in real quick. Is the concept that we knew during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviets, this idea of mutually assured destruction, does this not, or does this concept not work in Pyongyang or no, inside it, the North Korean it, government? It, it doesn't work. Um, well, it, it doesn't work per se, and, and, and in, some, in some ways it does. So to, to continue, so you know, one, I, I personally think that that there's been something brewing, big brewing, uh, with the North Koreans for a while. We almost went to blows with them in the 1990s. A lot of people don't know that, but things got pretty pretty tense. Um, in that situation, it wasn't so much a, a function of the North. Uh, coming south, it was a function of the south just being tired of the BS, and they were getting ready to go north. Um, the, um, the the idea of the mutually assured destruction actually is more economic. Uh, when you think of companies with names like Samsung, Hyundai, Daewoo, LG, these are all companies that do a tremendous amount of business inside the United States and around the world. And the, um, the there's a lot of things that get made uh, in in Korea that are sold bought and sold here in the United States. So the economic input or economic effect of, of, a, of a major uh, major uh, fight in Korea would be long lasting and very very intense. And in that way, in that regard, yeah, the, the concept of mutually assured destruction works. Dan Lipner, it, it seems like the administration and and the State Department in particular is kind of caught between a rock and a hard spot, that we run the risk of looking kind of passive to our allies if we let diplomacy win the day. Uh, However, we look overly hawkish and we look like a tyrannical uh, leadership with our government if we go in there, guns a-blazing. Is there some sort of median here that we can balance, or is this going to be a all in on either side? Well, a couple of things there. So I know there is a fringe group out there that would like all American foreign policy to simply be machismo all the time. But that's not the reality on the field. 
Uh, even Secretary uh, Mattis has said that you need diplomacy, otherwise you need a lot more guns. And the everything that Admiral Ken and Allen have said is absolutely correct. The South Koreans have been living under the what would be a nuclear apocalypse, but simply with conventional weapons based on what North Korea has trained on all of South Korea. I mean, there were astronomical numbers that were released a few years ago, something like 100,000 shells that could land on Seoul in the first 10 minutes of fighting. That would pretty much level all of Seoul. So they've had a different perspective. It's the this president this and this white house and i'm actually going to segregate this white house from his secretary of state his secretary of defense and his u.n ambassador um who have been speaking relatively sanely about the north koreans who are a challenging topic i mean the the problem with the mad doctrine which is the mutually assured destruction is assumes a rational actor and it's unclear the North Koreans are truly rational actors. The closest we ever had to movement on the, uh, the North Korean uh, nuclear research front was actually at the end of the Clinton administration. They were able to get cameras into the North Korean nuclear facility to ensure that they didn't continue refining uh, the uranium to be fissile material to, to make nuclear weapons. That and the changed. And the reason for that was that Kim Jong-un, uh, that would be uh, Kim Il-sung, was still alive. Um, also and, correct. Yeah, he was still alive. And he was, he was, for lack of a better way of putting it, a lot more rational than his son. You know, that, that being no reason to insult perfectly rational people around the world with, with, with that comparison. Right. <laughs> yes, more, more rational. That said, this is bad for almost everyone. However, it... It might be it might come time to also game out, and this is more Allen's ballywick. If if this should come into a shooting war between North Korea, South Korea, us, and I believe the task force at the DMZ is actually a UN task force, since that was technically what ended the war, uh, the Korean War last time. Um, even though we are the the supermajority of all the forces there what it would do to trade not just in the region but globally if you if you have the Koreans and the Japanese unable to ship goods and having a pretty large disruption to the Chinese that would have an amazing effect not necessarily good but an amazing effect to global commerce i mean this is not a small deal so uh, i'd be me, curious on Alan's go, thoughts let, let me go to Alan on this you know Alan it it, it almost seems that you know, the destruction of major industrial power, not just in the region, but globally, like South Korea. Uh, you know, Seoul is only but 41, 42 miles from the border with the north and easily within artillery range of, of the north. Do, is this a point where we have to appease a lunatic from having the lunatic get his way and start this destructive battle on the Korean Peninsula? Or do we have an option of being firm with diplomacy and possibly military action in some way to keep him contained inside his borders, Alan? Well, 
all the experts are spending, uh, all the experienced people, all the inexperienced people are spending an enormous amount of time trying to figure this out. As, as Dan accurately says, you're, you're dealing with, his word is lunatic. I don't object to that term. I'm, I'm, I don't know what he is. He is completely unpredictable. And he is, he is obviously paranoid, and he's weaponized. Uh, we but don't know. Let me just interrupt you real quickly on that, on that idea real quick, Alan. Does, if the fact that he is unpredictable as he is, that he is weaponized with unconfirmed nuclear assets and, and missiles that could at least hit our allies in Japan and Taiwan, uh, that being the case, does that not give the argument for preemptive military action and give the green light to General Mattis, uh, Secretary um, uh, Tillerson, and the White House? It, it, there's no green light to military action because the, it's not obvious what the, that action should be, right? As we... It, we've we've got some carriers in the region um, that 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 carry some pretty uh, fancy weapons, but we're not talking about using a nuclear weapon, which would probably be uh, devastating not just for North Korea but for South Korea, the entire region. It would totally destabilize uh, everything in the region. We would never uh, use first strike nuclear capacity. I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, that that anyone would think that that would be in our interest, um, but even massive conventional uh, weaponry uh, invites uh, uh, a disproportionate response from somebody. As as Dan said, you 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 have this expectation in the world of of dealing with rational people, and we don't know that this man is rational. We have little reason to believe that he is. We. We don't know. We don't want to trigger. Uh, there's talk about uh, shooting down uh, ballistic missile tests. Um, and if we were to do that, that is not uh, unprovocative. And so the fear, again, is if we do that to try to slow their development, if you will, of, of delivery uh, weapons, assuming they've got something to deliver, um, and we have every reason to believe that they do in terms of a nuclear weapon, um, how do they respond? They might simply say that's an act of war. Let's attack. Uh, it, it, it seems unlikely that they would have the capacity to deliver something to our shores, but we don't want them to deliver something, lob something uh, like a nuclear weapon into Seoul um, or, for that matter, to Japan. Um, I mean, it would be disastrous and devastating um, in 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 human lives, uh, in uh, economics of the world, in 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 global trade, and in global confidence in our ability to uh, as as a as a civil as 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 a, as a civilized world to to prevent craziness that kills. Uh, by the millions, Admiral Admiral Ken, are are we smart to underestimate their military capability, or do we have to go with 
the overestimation that this guy actually has nukes. This guy actually has the potential to deliver these nukes to either at minimum Seoul, at most Tokyo, and at the far greatest end of that spectrum, the U.S. West Coast. Do we underestimate or do we overestimate this? I'll answer the question this way. So if you compare the actions of North Korea with those of Iran, uh, the Koreans have shown a tremendous amount of progress in a relatively short period of time, relatively short period of time. I mean, it, you know, less than, less than five years ago, they were able to, uh, uh, they weren't able to get a no-dog missile off the, uh, off the pad uh, to even crash into the, uh, the, the Pacific well, Ocean. Well, let me, let me hold hold on, interrupt real on. quick. Hold on, Admiral Kelly, let me just ask you a question real quick about that and interrupt with this question. You know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, the, the huge advancements that they've made in their military capabilities. Is that overhyped that we've bought into, or is no. that real? No, I don't think it's overhyped. I think it's real. And I think that it's, it's, it's safe to assume that they, they, are getting, they are getting help from someone outside of North Korea. Uh, China, perhaps, uh, Iran, um, I, I, would even, I would even go so far as to put Russia on the list even though that hasn't been discussed in, uh, out in the open. They're, they're, doing an awful, they're doing an awful lot. So do I think it's wise to underestimate them? No. Is it wise to overestimate them? Absolutely. If I'm going to get ready to go into a fight, if I'm going to get ready to take an, or, uh, a ship or, or uh, a carrier strike group into a fight, then I want to basically assume that this person, you know, uh, one, is ready for it, has been training for it and, and, and is expecting it. And so anything else less than that, I'm not doing service to uh, the people that I would be leading. Dan Lipner, are the, are the Democrats, are you finding that the Dems are increasingly becoming hawkish on the Korean question, or is there still a vast majority that are hoping that diplomacy wins out at the end of the day? I think everyone's hoping that diplomacy wins out at the end of the day. I mean, I, I do want to come back to the fact that while the nuclear weapons are absolutely horrendous, the conventional weapons within the North Korean arsenal have the ability to kill millions in a relatively short period of time. So absent diplomacy, there's going to be a very bad outcome to this. Even if we use the, the most sophisticated and surgical abilities of the U.S. military, a North Korean response will lead to tragedy on many different fronts. So do not support diplomacy is insane. Well, I want to go – you brought up a point, Dan, that, that, that kind of makes me reminisce about pre-Gulf War One, going back to Desert Shield. And Admiral Ken and uh, – and uh, Alan Moore, I want to pose this question to you, Admiral Ken, first. When I hear the comments of Dan Lipner, which he may be correct, that the conventional arsenal that the North Korean military has will rain hellfire on South Korea, particularly the capital of Seoul. Uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives could be at stake. But I, I go back to the time when we were – pre-Desert Storm into Kuwait to thwart off the, uh, the Iraqi invasion of that kingdom. And we, all we had heard was that 
the Iraqi Republican Guard were just tremendous military force. It, we will lose hundreds of thousands of, of, of American lives in fighting this true military behemoth that is the Iraqi military. Ken, is it possible that the same kind of overestimation that we had in dealing with the Iraqi military back then is the same consideration that we could be feeling right now uh, with the North Koreans and we're just being overly cautious? No, I, I think, I think your, your, your question uh, is, assumes an apples and oranges comparison, Justin. So how, how so? So, so, so the, I, I well remember some of the comments that were made back in those days because I was out there and bracing for it. And we were worried about the doggedness and the professionalism and, and uh, the, uh, the ability for the, the Iraqi soldier to carry on a fight. And, yeah, we were worried about that. And as it turns out, they, they weren't ready for us, and no, they, they got their butts kicked. This is different in that even if they never put an Iraqi soldier on the field, to Dan's point, you know, we know about the number of artillery shells they've got. We know the, the fact that uh, be they World War II era shells or shells built uh, last week, they've got the capability of, of taking out a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of human life and property uh, in South Korea. So whether their soldiers can fight or stand up to a, a, a fight, a, 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 a unit on unit fight against U.S. And South Korean uh, uh, assets, yeah, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What what we do know is that when 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 uh, when, the, when Kim Jong Un says go, uh, hellfire will rain down from the sky, and it will be bad. It will be epically bad. Alan Moore, I pose the same question to you. Yeah, no, I'd like to echo echo Ken's point. the The, the question is not whether the the U.S. could defeat the South Korean military, obviously we could, we could destroy it in a whole host of ways, but North Korean, that's mean. not, but, but it's it, by North Korean, excuse me. The, 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 the key point is what would happen in the interim. And that's what these guys are talking about. The North Koreans would attack South Korea. That that's where that's their, their biggest enemy. They're talking about America as an enemy because we're, uh, acting aggressively, talking aggressively. Um, we are openly, publicly critical of them constantly, and they have very thin skins. Uh, you don't see that kind of behavior from the South Koreans. They don't want to be provocative. But if we're provocative, they're not going to try to beat us. They're going to just unleash on South Korea. That's their target. That's the. That's why, as as Ken says, it really is an apples and oranges situation. We're not worried about them beating us. We're worried about them attacking and doing grotesque damage to our ally. And uh, uh, so we know they have that capacity. It's it's not a matter of underestimating, overestimating. And we right. have every reason to believe that that would be the, the first place that they would would uh, turn their energies. All right. I find it interesting. One, one, one last point. I, I find it interesting that um, rather than than engage uh, Kim Jong Un in the manner that um, the president has chosen to uh, engage other other people who are making quote noise unquote that he doesn't want to hear, he's decided to pick at this gap 
Um, honestly, yeah, I, I, I think of this as a, is, is, is a no-win scenario. We can't fight them uh, on, on terms that we'd like to fight them. Um, we, we really have not been able to do much to deter Kim Jong-un's uh, quest for domination in, in the area. I think, I think President Trump uh, trying to uh, align the, the, the Chinese with trying to help us out is, is, is probably the, the smartest and best thing possible because, the, you know, the six-party talks have failed. Uh, direct negotiations have failed over the years. Bribing them with food over the years has failed. Quite frankly, the only way to really, from my perspective, really get to them is through the Chinese. And again, I'm not entirely sure the Chinese aren't helping them uh, with, with all their technology advances. And Dan Lebron, I'll give with you last word. Yeah, so the only additional point I wanted to make is that American diplomacy isn't just who is in the White House at the time. It actually stands the test of time. And leaders, unlike ours, don't necessarily turn over quickly, but other places have memory. Um, prior to the second Gulf War, uh, Eleanor Clift uh, said something interesting, that the message to North Korea has been pretty clear. Pack heat. After U.S. Uh, inspectors, excuse me, after U.N. Uh, weapons inspectors gained entry to Iraq to hopefully, hopefully thwart the second Iraq war, they were eventually kicked out and George W. Bush signed the papers for us to invade um, with arguably congressional approval. That was seen by other people throughout the world and arguably led to at least hardened North Koreans' uh, belief that they needed to have the ability to truly thwart the U.S. with nuclear weaponry. So it's not just Donald Trump's administration that's at play here. It's American foreign policy based on the past and going forward. So this is a real deal that, that needs to be paid attention to, and it needs to be done well. Well, that's going to be a great segue into our next segment. Uh, we're, going to, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, President Trump's meeting with Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping and uh, find out the flip-flop that's going on not only with China but with others uh, foreign allies or foreign adversaries There's a lot of flip-flopping going on In the White House about this uh, We're going to talk about that This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio From Washington D.C., Florida, and California We will be back in three minutes Stay with us This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. Again, I seem to feel that old yearning 
And I knew the spark of love was still burning There'll be no new romance for me It's foolish to start For that old feeling is still in my politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. Radio. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio, which means it's Tuesday. And joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, Dan Lipner Esquire, and the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hey, we're going to change uh, a little bit here and talk about a subject that actually ties into the Korean question, but ties into a much broader, broader issue that we're finding inside the Trump White House. Uh, for those who don't know, Two things we learned. Two things over the weekend regarding uh, President Trump and the relationship that we have with the Chinese president. Uh, president Trump met with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping in Mar-a-Lago, and two things we came away with: one, Mar-a-Lago has incredible chocolate cake, and two, <laughs> and two, apparently. There is no currency manipulation being done by the Chinese government, which is a complete 180 from the candidate Trump during the presidential election. So the question now is either A, what does the Chinese government have on President Trump to make him do such a radical 180, or B, is this just part of the learning curve? Is this President Trump growing up and being presidential? Uh, Dan Lipner, I want to start with you. Where does this big flip-flop, because this is a major policy change for this White House. 
I just want to make sure I heard that right. You let in with the chocolate cake and asking whether or not this makes President Trump more presidential? Yeah. (laughs) You got me choked Uh, up. Yes, that pretty much it. Well, the short answer is no. It doesn't make him more presidential. And it looks like his poll numbers aren't reflecting him looking any more presidential even after the Syrian strike. Um, As far as the currency manipulation, and I'm far from an expert on this topic, but apparently the the Chinese currency is now floating with international uh, currency rates, which it wasn't prior. Uh, And this has been going on for a few years, but Donald Trump probably heard it somewhere. And in the Alex Jones media world, they're still saying the Chinese are doing it and facts don't matter there. So... Donald Trump now changing his mind is more of a is more of an interesting thing. What would have been seen as a bargaining chip because much of the Chinese trading market is the United States. Obviously, it goes throughout the world. The United States is a pretty large purchaser of goods made in China. Um, He just gave it away over chocolate cake while also confusing Iraq and Syria. Um, So. It, it, it's it, it's more of a baffling kind of approach to foreign policy. I I'm looking forward in 20 years to hearing what the 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 Chinese diplomatic corps truly thinks about this White House and this presidency. But it, it's challenging to say the least. So I have gotten several tweets uh, on my phone from several people asking me to describe what the hell chocolate cake for those who don't know the chocolate cake reference uh right after a key meeting where president trump said that china is no longer a currency manipulator uh he gave an exclusive interview to fox business news's marina maria bartolomo and ms bartolomo interviewed him about the meeting and he said he starts off the interview with along with having amazing chocolate cake and Maria and the look on Maria's face is just classic, but that's what we mean by chocolate cake. The first thing I have his mouth about the meeting with president G Jinping is the chocolate cake was amazing. And just, it just went downhill from there, but back to topic, Alan Moore, uh, you know, is this a situation where uh, his treasury secretary Munchen has gotten to him Secretary of State Tillerson has gotten to him. Every other sane mind who understands the global economy has gotten to him saying, boss, you got to tone down the Chinese manipulation question. Or is this something that maybe we just didn't see and we're now opening up the genie bottle and saying, oh, we were wrong all along? Well, so I I think that that, uh, the president has been – uh, a little slow to catch up with the facts. That's not new. Um, and, uh, and my guess is that, that, that the way he caught up with the facts was, one, he had a meeting with, <laughs> the, with President Xi, and good gosh, you better be uh, on your game. This is what happens when, you're, uh, when it's your meeting and it's heads of state and it's uh, – and it's a country of the importance of China. You really have to uh, 
started doing some homework, uh, and so he catches up to the to one what's actually going on currency wise, and there's been a long history of currency manipulation, and and uh, and there are certainly people out there, not least of all uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. Uh, who who believe who still believes that uh, they're a currency manipulator? There's probably who knows where the the truth is. They're certainly not um, uh, the the big time total control of their currency uh, enterprise that that they once were. Um, whether it's a completely free floating uh, currency or not, I think is 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 a different question. Um, but but they're certainly not the big sinners they once were with regard to currency. Um, the, the people that Trump listens to are the, the, the guy that's probably got his ear on this is, is, uh, inside the white house. This is the Gary Cohn versus, um, Steve Bannon issue where Bannon right. would say here, he's as the sort of self-proclaimed keeper of the campaign promises. What a job that must be, huh? Cause he keeps, seems to, to keep losing, um, as as President Trump becomes more informed and 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 reflective and and doesn't doesn't particularly worry about nor does there seem to be a big penalty for simply changing his mind. So I think this is right. Gary Cohn saying, no, no, here's what's actually going on, and Bannon saying, yeah, but here's what you said. We wouldn't have to argue the merits, although maybe they maybe that gets played out. But, and, but, for those, but and, and for those, please, please jump in real quick, Alan Moore. For those who don't know, uh, Gary Cohn, longtime Wall Street uh, banker type, very close to Donald Trump on a personal level, has recently become uh, kind of an unofficial key advisor of reason, is what I'm hearing. Is there is there truth to that that Gary it, Cohn is actually? I, I wouldn't call him the voice. unofficial advisor. He. He has a he has a has an office upstairs from the president in the West Wing. He was he was the chairman of Goldman Sachs. This is not a small potatoes guy. He would yeah. have been a logical candidate to be Secretary of the Treasury, and he is now. But he's chairman of the Economic Council inside the White House, which means that he is uh, uh, he is just one floor away from uh, the president at all times. He drops in on all kinds of meetings has increasing influence is said to be close to Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law. So uh, there's, there's talk of a cone faction inside the white house on the raw, on the ascendancy while the, the Bannon faction is, uh, is supposedly on the decline. Having said that, don't lose sight when we're talking about China of what we just talked about with regard to Korea, North Korea exists because China has found it in its own interest to allow North Korea to continue uh, to exist and function and have enough money to starve its people, but still develop all of these weapons. So if we're really worried about North Korea and we just spent time talking about why we are and why we need to be, China really matters with regard to North Korea. So it's, it was, it was, uh, uh, very important that the president and President Xi would ha- develop some kind of a relationship, whether it was over great chocolate cake, uh, <laughs> uh, discussions about about being a currency manipulator, a beautiful golf course, a great steak dinner, or Dover Sole, if that was your preference. Then, um, uh, how do we uh, 
how do we befriend these guys uh, beyond the the whole economic relationship uh, because uh, their ability to squeeze North Korea or influence North Korea uh, is, uh, is is just as a, is is extraordinarily important in its own right, and that Dan, had to be part of these conversations. Dan Littner, you know, we we saw the flip flop with uh, the Chinese currency manipulation this weekend, uh, with the visit of uh, President Xi to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this, on top of the situation and the relationship that is, for from what I've heard, talking to some folks in the administration hugely frigid between Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and President Donald Trump. Are, are we getting schooled by our foreign adversaries and even in some instances our foreign allies when it comes to global economic and global geopolitical decision-making? Well, the short answer is yes, because it's really not clear where are the presidents at play on this? However, if I want to go one little caveat on that, Gary Cohen's existence in the White House is also another breaking of the campaign promises where Goldman Sachs wasn't going to have any power anymore. That was part of the drain the, the swamp thing that, that uh, Donald Trump talked about. Mind you, I'm in favor of this breaking this campaign promise, but nonetheless, it is a, a broken campaign promise. But yeah, uh, there's a, there's another opinion on that. But go ahead. <laughs> I'm shocked that Alan Moore's got another opinion on that, and we'll get to that. But Dan, go ahead. <laughs> but but that being said, I mean, all the stories from uh, as far as the inner workings, and this is all based on uh, leaks from other uh, other centers of power around the world, is they're unclear as far as what to take from the White House statements from either the president or the president's immediate communication staff in the White House, that they're all now looking to other signals from whether it be the economic advisors, the secretaries of uh, commerce, treasury, defense, uh, UN ambassador. They're all looking for clues there because this White House is less than clear on where they stand on almost any issue other than wanting to build a wall. And it, it, but it makes it challenging to see where foreign policy goes. And even for Americans, the people who are governed who, who by this White House, to truly know where the U.S. position is. And I think that's challenging. Well, let me... Let me go one step further with that one, Dan. Is when I still want to hear Alan's, qu- Alan's point on the uh, on the Goldman Sachs. Absolutely, Alan Moore. Please let sure, me- sure. See, this is <laughs> this is a problem that Dan sometimes runs into. He listens to Elizabeth Warren, who hates Goldman Sachs. He listens <laughs> to Bernie Sanders, who hates Goldman Sachs. They hated Donald beyond Trump belief the fact Goldman Sachs. The, 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 the beyond belief that that uh, Goldman Sachs would be providing secretaries of treasury and other senior economic advisors to uh, to Democratic administrations. My recollection of what Donald Trump said about draining the swamp was that. The language was swamp-like. It never had the kind of detail that that, uh, Dan says it does. Now, maybe I'm wrong here. He can go look. I just don't remember 
Donald Trump trashing Goldman Sachs as much as he trashed powers that be economic interests. He may have said Wall Street, but I just don't recall the the personal direct antipathy towards Goldman that Dan as, ascribes to him. And I'm thinking that in his brain, he might just might have been so overwhelmed with the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders words that he attributed them to our president. I could be wrong, but I invite Dan to supply the detail if he's going to make the accusation. I have a quote here. Okay. I know the guys at Goldman Sachs, they have total control over him, Ted Cruz, just like they have total control over Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, we, that's, so that's Ted Cruz. I, that's Ted Cruz in political mode. What, how, how does that say there will never be anybody from Goldman Sachs in my administration? I'm not seeing the, 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 that, that crucial connection. There is a implication, I'm sure you would agree. Oh, 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 okay. We were talking, I thought, about a campaign promise. I would love to read back Dan's gentlemen, words about the breaking gentlemen. of another okay. campaign promise. Okay. Let's, let's focus. Stay with me, kids. Stay with me. Um, <laughs> here, here's the reality. Uh, and, Admiral Ken, I'm going to go to you on this one. I'm going to put those two in timeout for a couple of minutes. Number one, when, when we have seen that in, in, some, in some minds got Trump elected, how is it the fact that now that he's taken away that America first, he's now used missiles against the Syrian airspace, he's used the mother of all bombs, the Moab ordinance against ISIS in the uh, border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, how does he keep his base solid and 100% behind him when we're seeing all these flip-flops and all these diversions from America first and the breaking of these campaign promises? Is this a problem? They're not flip-flops. Um, why? Uh, I will tell you why. President Trump in one of its very first debates, uh, when I think it was the, uh, before he insulted uh, uh, Megyn Kelly, it was in that same Fox News debate, basically said, you know what, I'm not going to be one of those people that is going to stick to one particular line as I cover I have the right to change my mind. And he got applauded. He got applauded in spades by the Fox News audience that was there. But as far as he's concerned, he's not flip-flopping. Uh, he, yeah, but he's Ken, been, he, 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 Ken, I'm, Ken, I'm, hold on, Ken, Ken, hold on, hold on, hold on. This <laughs> is a man that has gone through multiple iterations of his campaign speeches, both through teleprompter and then off of bullet points off the index cards that he pulls out in airplane hangers, and has said consistently, no force in Syria. Getting involved in Syria is a mistake. He has consistently said that China is a currency manipulator. He has gone – I mean, we haven't even talked about the awkward meeting that he had with the Secretary General of NATO uh, within the past week and a half, where you know, he says, you know, I'm going to renegotiate NATO. Where NATO is obsolete to oh, – NATO is the greatest thing, and we 100% support NATO 110%. 
How is that not flip-flopping? Because to me, that, that, that sounds like broken promises. Justin, that was your question. Your question was, how can he basically change his position and not lose his base? So I answered your question in that Isaiah, his base is okay with him getting more information and changing his stance on things. They're not going away. They're not going away. In, 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 in your mind, in my mind, and probably in the minds of Dan and, and Alan, yeah, is this a flip-flop? Sure it is. But as far as he's concerned and as far as his base is concerned, they're okay with that. Alan Moore, do you concur? Yeah, yeah I, I, I do. I think the key was that last point, that, that one can look at direct language and say, he said this, and now he's doing that. Those are not the same things. So we can say this was a flip-flop, that was a flip-flop, you know, I'll take issue, as, as you heard me do with Dan, about whether hating Goldman Sachs was a flip-flop or not. But, 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 but the key was what Ken said about how his base feels. On many of these issues, they don't care. They want somebody who's, who, who calls it as he sees it, talks differently from other politicians, acts differently, but... They also want him to be a president who will respond to situations, will learn on the job, will pay attention, and will say things that, <laughs> that even though they are in direct conflict with things he has said in the past, NATO being a good example, um, that, that uh, they're okay with that. Their feeling is, see, he's not rigid, he's not crazy, he listens, but he still calls it the way he sees it. So Dan Lipner, do you? It, Dan Lipner, what say you on this? Calling it like he sees it. Well, I mean, the White House still has yet to explicitly respond to how Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Um, that one's still floating out there. But yeah, I mean, I, I will concede he's changed his mind on things, but he's changed his mind very quickly and. It's almost as though he has a glass jaw for any kind of issue. It's the the bargaining position, this great negotiator that he claimed to be. The the rhetoric, which is a tool in politics that he actually had in his in his tool bag now as president, he's giving it all away very very quickly. And if, if he flips back on a much more hardline approach into his presidency, it's going to be hard to see how anyone takes it seriously. So well, I sort of agree with both Alan and, and Ken on this, but exactly where you go from here, considering how quickly he folds, given pushback or for a nominal gain, it, it's unclear what his negotiating position is with any of it. Well, let me let me just take a step back from that right now. I mean, you know, when you look at, you know, the chocolate cake diplomacy that we did with President Xi Jinping, when you look at the change in vibe with the meeting with the Secretary General of NATO and even, you know, even the the, the flip-flopping that we're seeing between the dynamic between uh Tel Aviv and Washington, particularly with the meeting that uh Benjamin Netanyahu had with Trump at the White House. It, it it seems to me that the question could be asked: Is he flip flopping, or are we in fact seeing Donald Trump wheel and deal? That he in fact knows what he's doing, and this is part of him going, "Ha, 
I got him exactly where I want him. Alan Moore? So I don't, I, I don't get the sense that he has this stuff plotted out and feels like he has people exactly where he wants them. Let me just jump in real quick. Is he that clever? I don't think so. And, and, and I don't know that I'd want him to be that clever. I mean, I'd like him to be more curious and more knowledgeable and smarter on this stuff. But I think that, that for better or worse, clever or not, he goes with the flow. He has a lifetime of changing his mind in the face of new information, of instinct, of circumstance. And I think that's what's happening now. And, 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 and he's hearing more and more from a group of people around him who is uh, more knowledgeable, gathering broader information, is better informed, is more cautious, is less doctrinaire, is less rigid. He hates uh, being called, uh, uh, he hates being called dumb. He hates polls that show that, that, uh, uh, that he's in decline. He likes uh, positive reviews, and when he changes his mind and he gets good reviews for it, that tends to reinforce that kind of behavior. It, it makes it very hard for the world to figure out what we've got, but what we've got is a person who is uh, subject to making changes on a dime, making changes very quickly. I don't think it's you know some big master strategy. I think it's probably the way he's functioned much of his life and has been able to succeed. Uh, Admiral Kent? Uh, Admiral Kent? I'm going to give you last. I'm going to give you the last word on this one. You concur with Alan? I do. Um, I think that part of the, the challenge that that we have all had with regard to predicting uh, what Donald Trump will do and say, and the likely outcome of the things that he has said and done, has been completely off for for, for a, a, a number of reasons. One, most of which. We expected him to behave like a conventional politician, which he has said and proven that he is not time and time again. And two, um, if you listen to what he has said he was going to do on on this subject uh, specifically, he's doing that. He is taking in new information. He's basically shifting in in his seat and he's changing his mind. He said he was going to do it. That's what he's doing. Dan Lipner, I want to give you the last word because I would like to hear somebody (laughs) counterbalance this. I mean, so focusing on the Netanyahu press conference for a moment. So it, there was a moment in the in the press conference where President Trump was very kind, very generous to Netanyahu, and then a moment where he pushed back on him and said, you know, maybe the building uh, uh, new Israeli settlements in Palestinian ter- territory was not so good. Maybe you could slow down on that a little bit. If he had forced Netanyahu to say something meaningful at that point, it would have been a meaningful statement and also reasserted the United States as the honest broker in the U.S.-Palestinian, excuse me, not U.S., excuse me, Israel-Palestinian issue that is there. And at least from my position, the, 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 the new construction, the new Israeli construction is indefensible. But Donald Trump waffled. 
literally right there. So, no, I, I agree with Alan. There's no, there's no grand Machiavellian approach to this, but it's a tragedy that he doesn't use what little he has when he has it. Ironically, ironically, as we are talking about this, breaking news, breaking news out of Wisconsin, President Trump has signed an executive order doing away with the with several immigration visas, including the uh, controversial. I can't believe we're actually doing this. Donald CNN is reporting that Donald Trump has signed an executive order doing a one doing away with the controversial. Uh, what is it? The one B. H one B visa program, as well as several other visa programs uh, that bring technical and skilled workers to the United States. Uh, CNN is quoting uh, is quoted as saying, as he's signing the order, "Buy American, hire American, America first. You bet." So, who wants to take on that one? Because I want to, I want to let you guys think about it. Because we're going to bring that up in the next segment. Because uh, that is important news. That could have huge economic consequences on Silicon Valley, on uh, technical expertise that comes in. I want to talk about that when we get back. So you guys think about it. Because to me, America first. Yeah, but that. There's flip of it. You can't have one and have the other. We'll talk about it when we come back. This is Back from Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. It's a remote show from Florida's Space Coast, California, and then the guys up in Northern Virginia, they're broadcasting too. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
is backroom politics. And uh, this is your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We are at the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I am joining you from the sunshine-filled space coast of Florida, where the folks at Orbital ATK had a very successful launch of a space station resupply uh, ship that went up, uh, named the spaceship John Glenn in memory of the former Mercury 7 astronaut and great U.S. Senator from the great state of Ohio. Um, Before we went to break, we had gotten the breaking news from folks at CNN. Now, to the folks down in Atlanta who write the headlines, if you're going to write the inflammatory headlines, back it up with the inflammatory facts, too. We had reported that CNN had been saying, which they did, that the H-1B visa program, that an executive order taking out the H-1B visa program was done by uh, President Trump at the Snap-on Tool facility in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Now, here's the reality. As we dig deeper into the story, it turns out that the executive order is a review of the H-1B visa program and the buy American, hire American uh, aspect of it still is the details on that still have to come out. But let, let, let's dig into this because I know that this is a huge economic issue that's going to either isolate the hell out of the American economy or make American industry stronger. Let's, let's, walk, down, let's walk down the H-1B visa program right now. Uh, for those who don't know, it is a visa program that allows technically skilled workers, and by technically we talk engineers, IT, uh, biomedical research, et cetera. It allows companies to give special visas and entry and work permits into the United States for those residents outside of the U.S. Uh, it has been a controversial program. Uh, it is it has cost some politicians, I don't want to mention any names, Virginia, some big political capital in trading H-1B visas for political favors, for donation, for et cetera. There's all kinds of, all kinds of political, uh, there's all kinds of political rhetoric around this visa program. Bottom line is the biggest opponents to any changes to the H-1B visa program would be Silicon Valley for obvious reasons. Um, Alan Moore, as somebody who is there just outside the valley that is Silicon, uh, how big of a problem does this does how big of a problem does America's technology companies have? Should they review the H one B visa program and turn it on its ear? Well, it depends on what the review shows. You know, the the, the Silicon Valley folks have been saying we need to increase the numbers. We cannot find in America the people with the skills that we need. Those people exist. They exist outside of the U.S., most commonly in India, but not just India. Um, and, and sometimes they exist with graduate students from all over the world studying in America on student visas who, when they finish their graduate school, uh, don't have the option of staying legally and have to go home. So 
the 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 American companies all say because it's also the correct thing to say, we would love to fill these jobs with Americans. They don't have the same skill level. That's why we have to look overseas. I don't know that that's true. Um, I'm certainly not going to challenge them. I'm not an expert. I'm just, you know, typically skeptical um, that there's a lot to be said for hiring people from overseas because you might be able to get them to work cheaper. We hire many technical people in American companies who live and work overseas. There, there have to be hundreds and hundreds of companies, and not just Silicon Valley, who have technical folks who work exclusively for them who live in India, and they work by phone. They, just, they work remotely. Um, so when they talk about a review, it, it, that's fine. It sounds good. Uh, buying America, hiring American, all sounds good. But when the skills aren't present in, uh, uh, in the numbers needed, then what do you do? Do you do without and not grow the way you would like to? Uh, do you pay ever higher salaries to the small, to the shrinking group or the limited group that, that, that's already here? Or do you invest in higher education and, and try to find other ways to increase the number of, of, uh, of U.S. Uh, workers? That's the kind of thing that a review would help to, uh, to show, and I wouldn't pre-assume what the answer would be. Uh, but, Admiral Ken, when, when we look at this issue, and we and we talk about the H-1B visa program, the tech, the, the tech companies out west where uh, Alan is walking around right now, uh, basically come back and say, look, these are the people that have the knowledge, the expertise to give us the technology like the apps that we develop for, let's say, Uber, or let's take in Microsoft, or let's take in Apple. You know, when we talk about that, though, it seems like we're in a catch-22. We, we don't have the STEM thought knowledge base that is required to be competitive. At the same time, the Trump administration wants to cut funding to Department of Education where, in, you know, instead of complaining about it, let's invest in technical schools and get these people technologically advanced enough to be competitive. Is, am, I, am, I, am I smoking pot here or what's going on? Well, I'm not in a room with you, Justin, so I, I won't be able to defend or argue. <laughs> but I will say that there, there tends to be two, two messages going forward. You know, further, you know, uh, President Trump has said both when he was the candidate as well as when uh, as, as the president that he's okay with, with immigration as long as we're bringing the best and the brightest and we can use them to further our greatness or worse that effect. But at the same time, um, you know, he's looking to do some things um, that make it more difficult to graduate more STEM, uh, American STEM graduates from our schools uh, than what we have. So in this situation, I would say you're probably not smoking pot. Yay! Yay me. Still can still clear the the, the background check on that. All right. Um, Dan Lipner, it seems to me that Whereas we are saying buy American, buy American, the talent to make stuff to buy American just isn't there. How do we fix the problem? 
So that's a meaningful question, and I think we would all concede there's at least been some abuse. The full extent might not be known, but at least some abuse of the H-1B uh, program, uh, which has been reported on. Uh, but there's also seems to be a very legitimate need for these technically skilled workers, particularly in Silicon Valley, Valley, but in other places as well. The problem that I've had, and I've had this question for some time, is why aren't we training these people in the United States? We have trillions of dollars in student loan debt and underemployed college grads. Why on earth? aren't they be learning these skills that there clearly is a need for and what can be done to steer the program, whether or not it's a, you know, a, a tremendous fee. And since the president uses, likes to use the word tremendous a, or a huge fee for these H1B applicants that would be targeted precisely to scholarship programs for those exact jobs that are being filled by foreign talent. It doesn't seem wildly unreasonable to say that there are Americans that could do these jobs if they were just trained to do them. Um, and if that's where the president's review of the H-1B program leads them, I would be supportive of it. But again, that would suggest that the this White House has an overall strategy toward anything, whether or not it's education or immigration. But, so. Hold on. I, I want to bring up. I want to bring up the fact, and I'll go to. I'll go to Alan Moore because he's actually there. Is the, the, the most glaring example of the H one B problem that we have? He's making microchips as we speak, Justin. What's that? He's making microchips as we speak. Don't bother I, him too I, much. I, I, I don't want. You guys I don't are making. It, it's really hard to concentrate with you guys babbling in the background. <laughs> Alan, when we look at the H-1B problem, you know, I, it, what comes to mind is the situation out at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, the biggest medical center in the system for University of California. They outsourced their entire IT department, 97 employees, gave them all pink slips, but gave them 90 days to, to stay around so they could train their H-1B visa and outsourced replacements i mean it, it, it when i hear those stories it makes me say all right well we obviously have the trained talent now it's just a matter of we're getting people who will work longer for cheaper that's the economic way to the to big industry is i'll find a way to make more money using more people's resources without spending that type of cash how do you counterbalance What's happening there versus the need for the H-1B visa? Well, it, <laughs> it's a reminder that things are always more complicated than they appear. You use the phrase uh, cheaper, cheaper costs so they can make more money, but you, but you happen to use a, <laughs> a nonprofit public facility that's in the medical field that's trying to deliver the best services possible at the at the lowest cost in the face of massive increases in healthcare costs. But um, you would think that and but so, Alan, you would think you would think that a public institution like the University of California healthcare system, like the University of California at San Francisco, 
would actually take that into consideration saying, look, we got to do better, but we've also got to employ. And if we can't employ Americans, we'll find a way to technically train the employees and make them better at their job. Well, you're, you're, <laughs> I'm not in their shoes. I'm not prepared to, to, to condemn somebody because they're looking to, to contain their costs. Now, if as a society we decide that we don't want that kind of cost control uh, to be employed or if, if there are people who have to be laid off, go on unemployment, whatever, we want to impose an even greater cost. I mean, as you know, employers whose employees go on unemployment have their experience rating changed and, it, and it, there, there's no free lunch here. I simply don't know the facts at 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 the University of California facilities but they're not they're not unaware of the awkwardness of the situation it is entirely possible that they're just that but I don't know that that they're not able to find the people ongoing that they need and maybe they want the to relocate the the jobs because they're able to they can offshore those jobs, save an enormous amount of money, and apply those savings elsewhere, either to lower costs for patients or higher investment in new equipment. I don't know. It it, it just is a, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous business for us at a distance to to know uh, what the problem is. And as far as Dan, when he was saying, well, "What's the matter? We got all this student debt," which is true. Why aren't all these students today? studying the stuff for which there's a demand. Well, so how many of us on this phone were, were STEM uh, uh, majors? I'm guessing Ken is the, is the only one that, that, that could lay claim to that. Um, today's kids don't want to study that. Now, some do. Some are absolutely brilliant. Um, when, when they can't find jobs in the humanities, when they, when they, uh, get out of school. Some of them need to be retrained. Some of them, when they go into school, are paying a lot hey, more attention. Hey, Starbucks, Starbucks uh, needs baristas just like everybody, and they're hiring America baristas. That, that's that's no, right. Al, Al, Alan's so, point is, is, is right, but, and there, there are all sorts of economic decisions that people make, and which is where I'm coming down on the side of the money that goes to the H-1B visa program, or I should say comes from the H-1B program, it costs money to apply for these visas and to bring people in for those jobs. That money being directed directly to it, highly subsidized, if not free, training programs, which I suspect would get pretty competitive pretty quick uh, for Americans looking to learn those skills. All right, but Dan, let me ask you this question. As a Democrat, is the H-1B visa program a valuable tool that has just gotten a bad name through situations like the allegations against Terry McAuliffe and his you know, pay-for-play on the H-1B visa program? I mean, the answer is both are true. There, there absolutely have been abuses. There are abuses with everything. The full extent of the H-1B visa is unclear. I mean, I mean, there are stories of the, 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 the largest employers being able to game the system since there's a finite number 
of positions in a lottery system that they simply overwhelm the the process so some portion of their applic- applicants will get through since they are the supermajority of people that have been put forth by their companies by their their corporate sponsors that said there is also a need for it so so I, like I said, the review is worthwhile. The question is the outcome and whether or not there will be a, a meaningful policy solution at the end. And thus far, this White House has been a little iffy on meaningful policy answers. That's to be seen. Let, let me just yeah, say a word about about, about Governor go McAuliffe. Um, go ahead, you know, Unaccustomed as I am to defending him, um, it, it, this isn't a defense. It's a clarification. I don't think he was abusing the H-1B program, what he was abusing was another category uh, where people of means in a position to invest, I believe, on the order of $5 million in a business in America could get automatic uh, visa access. It wasn't a 1B. It was, a, it was an individual uh, entrepreneur investment uh, type visa. And they they were out peddling these to wealthy uh, wealthy folks from around the world who said, "Hey, you looking for a business to be able to come to America? You got wealth. Here's your business. We're going to make these little electric cars down in Southern Virginia someplace, and you invest your five million, you get your visa, and then we think this is a good investment. We think it'll pay off, but it doesn't. It it may or may not." And American millionaires deserve those jobs too. I'm defending American That's millionaires. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but we shouldn't. But we but but we we should not. We should not uh, tr- trash the H-1B program for that particular for the Terry McAuliffe abuse. That was yeah. that was a different the abuse. Rodden deserve a Bentley, not merely a high-end Lincoln. Oh wait, that's not American. <laughs> <laughs> Admiral Ken, what say you, as somebody who's been around the tech sector, I mean, does the H-1B visa program, if it is crushed or disabled in any way, does that put American tech at a disadvantage? I don't think so. Um, you know, I'll, I'll you know, specify my comments around the software development in the uh, in, in, uh, and analytics space. I won't. I won't speak to the broader engineering um, areas. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think there is definitely a, um, a need there, but there are a good number of, of American uh, IT workers uh, who don't have, you know, the, the exact requisite experience that's needed, uh, but may only be. A number of months away from being able to gain that through a good, a good training and development program. You know, as much as I, I like, I can, I can find some fault in what the president uh, has done and said uh, over the, the course of his candidacy and his, and his, and his, his, his presidential tenure to date. Um, I think that we're trying to, you know, find a way to tap into American talent and use that first before we start looking for other options. I have a thing wrong with I'll see thing wrong with that. I think it's a good thing. And you know, in, in, in my brief experience with outsourcing to places like India and Ireland for IT support, um, it, it always looks better on paper when we do that. And then and then the actual 
operations start, and the devil's always in the details. And the details sometimes, most often, uh, more often than not, come back and bite companies in the butt. And I, I think this is, I think looking here first and trying to train what we've got first is definitely the way to go. You know, regarding that, that item, and you bring up a good point, uh, Admiral Ken, I was the other day was talking to a friend of mine uh, from the uh, Canadian government up in Ottawa. And you know, who, you know who's laughing all the way to the bank on this whole H-1B America First issue is the Canadian economy. They literally are going to everybody who wants to come into the U.S. Tech companies are opening up. Large operations, HP has done it, Microsoft has done it, I believe Apple is in the process of doing it. They're opening up large operations in Canada and bringing their H-1B candidates there instead of here. And Canada's getting the tax, they're getting the revenue, they're getting all the benefits of it. I mean, are we not going to learn from situations like that, Alan Moore, that say, you know what, it's a matter of simple these people come here, they pay taxes, there's revenue that they generate through the ripple effect. Let's stop vilifying this process. Well, again, I don't know that we're vilifying it. There are politicians who, who like to, but there are literally uh, there, there are hundreds of companies that rely in a big way. And as you say, there's no free lunch. If we, if we, if we decide for whatever political reason that we're going to slash – the number of, of of H-1B visas rather than increase the number, which um, uh, which many, many companies want um, uh, because the numbers are limited, um, then people will find another way. They will go to Canada. They will set up, uh, they will set up remote locations, which are not ideal, uh, where they can get these workers. They will go to third other, other countries uh, uh, in Asia and Europe, elsewhere. Um, they're not going to simply watch uh, their competitors have advantages that are unavailable to them. It's a, it really is a global economy. Right. Um, if, right. if these Indian engineers are so amazing and so good uh, and, and so affordable uh, in certain fields, they're going to find a way, entrepreneurs are going to find a way to take advantage of that. What we have to do is be smart enough to understand the underlying economics, the long-term substitution effects, the long-term needs for education and encouragement uh, in America. Um, even at the same time, we allow uh, uh, U.S. companies to have some flexibility to, pr- to, pr- to protect their own interests, to, to pursue their own interests, and, and it's always a negotiation, and there will always be differences of opinion. That's where the politics comes in. That's where the balancing act uh, comes right. in. Anybody who thinks they've got a simple solution is either stupid or lying. Wow. I'll let that be the last word. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. In case you didn't know, today's tax day. You have until midnight tonight to get your, your taxes or your extension and your check to the Internal Revenue Service. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the new domestic policy that seems to be on the front burner, that is tax reform. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. (laughs) 
segment for another edition of the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio from a remote location, undisclosed to everybody. Actually, we disclosed it earlier. I'm actually down here in the space coast of the Sunshine State of Florida. We've got Alan Moore out in the Bay Area of San Francisco, out in the Golden State of California. And then Ken and Dan are leaving their mundane Inside the Beltway lives, and we appreciate that for holding down the fort. Hey, Let's talk a little bit about what's going on with domestic policy. We've talked about foreign policy. We've talked about immigration. Let's talk a little bit of tax policy. In case you don't know, today is tax day. You have until midnight to get your extension or file your taxes with the Internal Revenue Service and send them a check, or hopefully they'll send you a check. That being said, uh, rumor coming out of Washington is the next big piece of exquisite chocolate cake on domestic policy that the Trump administration with the help of Congress wants to fight is tax reform. That's right. They want to tackle tax reform because health care wasn't hard enough. Let's go after something equally as difficult. Let's go after tax reform. So that being the case is the question is, can tax reform be successfully revised, revisited, or does it die the same ugly death as the health care reform or the anti-Obamacare efforts did in the first hundred days of the Trump presidency? Alan Moore, I go to you. What did it say you? Okay, first of all, although 
Although it looks like healthcare is dead, there do, does seem to be a few thin threads of life that 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 may cause it to come back. Just a quick word there. I think the uh, uh, the freedom, the so-called Freedom Caucus of mostly conservative people, uh, is, is feeling the squeeze, embarrassed themselves, embarrassed their biggest uh, supporter inside the White House, one Steve Bannon, who basically said. Uh, so reportedly, now nah, don't worry, these guys will come around in the end. Um, having said that, the, 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 there is no easy out on health care, but there at least is an effort to keep it alive and come up with something that could get through the House. I, I, I don't know. There's maybe one in ten chance of that. So we could, people could pick their different odds. It, point being, it's not quite dead. Um, okay. Tax reform. Tax reform. Is a to- is is a is a really uh, uh, different kind of. Oops! Somebody just bumped my car. <laughs> I'm sitting in my what? car. What? Oh, 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 no, it's fine. So, so, no, 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 somebody's somebody's backing up, and they're just totally uh, unaware that they bumped. Well, it was. Uh, we won't ind- indicate the gender of the driver, but a, 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 a gender that's something that, that sometimes we have female listeners, into, Alan. We have female bumps into things and, and acts like nothing happened. Uh, I'm not saying anything about uh, any detail. Um, uh, I love but, I love live radio. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to say anything about the gender, but then she drove off with her friend. So. <laughs> Had female so, listener. Had female listener. Yeah, and there goes our female demographic. So, Thanks, so, so I couldn't resist. I'm hoping my wife is is listening in so she can she can jump oh, on me later. Oh, you, oh that um, is a long so, flight back from San Francisco, my friend. <laughs> anyway, tax reform. Tax reform can be big. Tax reform can be small. Um, they are thinking big. Uh, they really want to focus on corporate tax reform. Uh, they really want to uh, t- take care of the so-called carried, carried interest loophole in which uh, a lot of, of uh, uh, hedge fund operators in uh, Wall Street and elsewhere around the country are able to, to pay taxes as though they were capital gains. That's not as good a deal as it used to be. Now it maxes out at at uh, just around 24%, um, but but there's revenue to be had there. But you know, a few billion here, a few billion there. The 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 the, the challenges with tax reform is that if you try to do it in a revenue neutral manner, we're not going to raise more money. We're not going to raise less money. It becomes what they call a zero-sum game. For every winner, there's a loser. For every loser, there's a winner, and the and the losers tend to make more noise and scream louder than the potential uh, winners. And uh, it's complicated. It's time-consuming. There's a better chance of getting some Democrats uh, to play uh, than in in healthcare if. The Republicans uh, learned any lessons from from the health care uh, issue so far and reach out and say, we'd love to work with you. Are there some things we can work with you on? This stuff is not is going to take 60 votes in the Senate. Um, yeah, but- uh, 
and yep. and it's a it's tough stuff, but there's a lot of pressure to to modify our system where currently our corporate tax rate is higher than any other developed country in the All world. All right. With that being, that being said, Alan Moore, let me go to Admiral Ken. It, it seems to me that with the bloody nose that the White House took with the failure of the health care reform situation, that going after something as third railish as tax reform would be something that you would look at maybe doing in your second year of first term rather than come blasting out of the gates just outside first hundred days after the whooping that you took, which for all intents and purposes, that was a political ass whooping that the White House took on health care. How does the Trump administration, how does the White House justify to Republicans within their own administration, let alone baseline hard Republican Party members, to say, you know what? We did such a good job on health care. Let's bring up tax reform. They've got other issues such as we've got debt ceiling we have to deal with. We have a budget that still has to be impressed upon. What, where's the logic in this, Admiral Ken? Is there? Yeah, I think, I think the, 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 the thing that, that I, I, I keep coming back to when I think about the decision to go out to health care first um, is that th- there – there seems to be a, um, a sense of urgency around getting the big stuff done now, getting it all done now. Uh, they're looking like they're running a sprint versus a marathon. And I don't, I don't know why, if that's true, I don't know why that would be. Um, I, I've heard, I've heard uh, and read a number of comments with regard to the fact that one of the main reasons that um, that the, the healthcare uh, effort had such a, a, a horrible end was because number one, um, Trump, the Trump administration didn't really have any friends in Washington D.C. Um, uh, you know, granted, you know he, he buffaloed his way into the Republican Party, and um, and then uh, pretty much used used uh, that platform to, to become president, and then once they got there. Uh, they weren't ready to govern. Uh, it was almost as if they were surprised they won. Uh, I know a lot of people were, but I like to think that, 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 that they weren't. And but because of that, they didn't have anybody inside the White House who truly understood how Washington, D.C. works. Okay, now, but, but, but on, that being – Hold on, okay. hold on. So, so that being said, you know, in, the days, in, 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 the, in the days that have, have followed since the health care debacle, you really haven't seen that many new faces show up on the team that truly understand that have got a way to talk to them about, okay, if you're going to do this, this is the way you do it. And these are the people you need to go after because one, you know, you've got people on both sides of the, of, of the political fence that are willing to do things for him. That being said, not that many of them are Democrats, but he does have a few out there. Because he's saying things that both people, that people in both parties like, because people in both parties voted for him. But that being said, there's a process to how things happen in this town. Lord knows I figured that out the hard way when I was in uniform at Pentagon. There's a process here, and they don't seem to be really understanding. They don't seem to understand that they really have to figure that process out and to make it work. That it's not going to just stop working for them. 
Well, <laughs> so but he, here here's the bigger here's the bigger question though. The same faces that you talked about, uh, Admiral Ken, are the same people that thought that hey, healthcare would be a good idea to get done in the first hundred days. Is, is there going? Is there any sort of learning curve that has been done by this administration that would say, look, let's keep our eyes on the ball, let's look long term. We got four years to do this. It, I mean, it, to me, it sounds like a bunch of kindergarten students running around with a new toy until it breaks, and they've already broken one of the toys. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to to, to sell them that far down the road uh, yet. I think you know my hope. My hope is uh, that they will, they, at some point, they'll, they'll do a skull session after, the, after this last defeat and figure out, okay, what do we do? How can we do this better? What are we missing here? And, I, you know, I, I have to believe that you know, part of the reason that Steve Bannon is, you know, uh, allegedly on the ropes is because someone inside the White House is actually doing that. But Dan, Dan Lipner, you know, what's amazing to me about the Democrats is, uh, you know, just when you think that the Republicans could be on the ropes, just when you think that the Democrats have them right where they want them, uh, they see another shiny, another shiny object in the mirror, and they're like, ooh, pretty, and they lose track of what's going on. The Democrats have an opportunity here, Dan, to look like they want to work and get the logjam broken. They have an opportunity to sit there and come up with uh, a working group to work out some of these ideas, but it's the figures like Chuck Schumer that are like, nah, you know what? We're good. We'll continue to fight our good fight. How does the, how does the Democratic Party not take advantage of saying, hey, we're trying to be part of the solution, not part of the problem? Well, the difference is the bully pulpit versus one of 535 members of the House and Senate. The, wait a minute. You can't tell me – wait a minute, Dan. You can't tell me the most dangerous place in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a camera. He has a bully pulpit. Would you not agree? He has a pulpit, but I would – outside of New York State and real politically interested people – I'd be hard-pressed to say 20% of the American public knows who Chuck Schumer is um, versus who knows who the president is. These are different things, the different beasts. So the olive branch has to start from the White House and not, and not the Senate. And since this White House has kind of approached Congress with a club as opposed to anything even remotely resembling a velvet glove, it's to be seen. And as Alan said, Tax policy is hard. It's really, really hard. And the part of the reason it's hard is because there are so many interests that are vested in the tax code. So, yeah, there needs to be tax reform, and there needs to be a lot of people at, at the table, and a fair amount of wheeling and dealing to be done to see what the end goal is. Is the end goal to raise more revenue? Is the end goal to... To balance the budget is the end goal simply to lower the corporate tax rate. What's the end goal that we are looking for that we can at least have a consensus and whatever dealing needs to be done in order to get there gets us there. But this White House has simply said the corporate tax code or the corporate tax rate is the highest in the developed world, which there is an element of truth to that. Um, But that's not accounting for any deductions and whatnot that that are 
been placed there by special interests. However, the complexity of the tax code is there because of those interests. So this White House can't just huddle together with Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and I'd say the president's going to be there, but I don't, I, I don't think he does that kind of thing, um, and get into the woods and get into the details. So yeah, but, when but does that happen? Let me go to Alan Moore, though, real quick. Alan Moore, it, it seems to me that you know, the, the comfort that I get is that the president has surrounded himself with some really good financial minds. We've mentioned a couple of them earlier. Uh, leading the helm on this is uh, Secretary uh, Mnuchin, who in large circles is regarded as a really smart financial mind. Can these smart financial mind coming together and put together a thorough a, a thorough reform enough that could bring both Republicans and Democrats to the table. Some will feel some pain, but that's the sign of a good deal is when nobody walks away happy. Well, so We've we've focused mostly in this conversation, including on healthcare, on the uh, the people around the president. Let's remember that uh, that they were following Paul Ryan's guidance on healthcare. This was not the White House plan. This was not the 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 design that President that that then candidate President Trump uh, uh, then candidate Trump said when he said. We're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something a lot better and a lot cheaper. But he never had any specifics cover because Can't leave that one out. there weren't, yes, there weren't any specifics. So then we get to the election and we get to priorities and, and it wasn't as though there was a big tax reform package that was ready to roll. The, the most visible promise uh, made again and again and again by uh, President Trump, uh, <laughs> other than the wall that Mexico was going to pay for, uh, was repeal and replace Obamacare. So, and and although they, there wasn't a Republican plan per se, there were rep- Republican ideas. There were there were bills. Um, they had never had to come together. They there was no. They, they had never coalesced around a particular idea. And they came, they, they came together around an idea that was very complicated, controversial, and ran into the buzzsaw of Congressional Budget Office estimates that, that, that more than 20 million people would lose health insurance. Now, some of those people would have insurance now but can't really use it because of the economics of using it. But it was a – and that's not a defense of the proposal. It's just that the groundwork wasn't laid – when the president tried to get the Freedom Caucus to vote for it, the Freedom Caucus, as I think I said before, may have done him and the Republicans a favor by refusing to go along because the Senate was not going to go along. And, and so you were going to have this House-Senate divide. Um, you were going to have all these town meetings uh, that we're, you're, we're hearing about even uh, in the last week and a half anyway, where Republicans spend a couple hours getting yelled at and abused all around the country. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't White House ineptness. It was White House lack of ability to get people to come over that meant that they couldn't get the Freedom Caucus. But 
that didn't that wasn't the reason we didn't have a health care bill. The reason we didn't have a health care bill is because it's so damn complicated. There's no easy answer. And the and the and the people who are, are afraid and stand to lose were making far, I, far more noise. I got to tell you, now, I got to tell you something. I got, I got to tell you something, Alan. The, the, the one piece I disagree with you on, on on what you're saying is is the blame going to Congress. Is you know that is a bus that the White House had been driving from day one. The, the, the Congress does not. I mean, President Trump is the head of the party. Period. They he don't is, have the capacity yet to put uh, with 20 people to put a major initiative together. This was. This was them oh, deferring to Paul Ryan. I agree. But what I'm saying to you is, is that the, the blame, you know, because if, if Paul Ryan had used logical sense and, and had gone to the White House and said, Mr. President, you need to put this on hold. Let us really think our way through this. Let us go through. Let, let the majority whip in Congressman Scalise with this vote in good time, get everybody on board. When we know that we vote, we will and we will push the button. Until that time, this stays alone. There are other things that we can work on. That's what I think should have been done. And I and I think that you know if Ryan had done that, Donald Trump would have been on Twitter the next day calling him a coward, calling him not a team player calling him all this other rhetoric that he puts out on Twitter. And I think that's why I think that's why uh, Congress went forward with what was largely seen as a flawed and not well thought out strategy and health care bill, period. Well, I mean, uh, it, 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 am I saying anything wrong on that? Well, yeah, a couple, it, it, yeah. It, was, it was the House Republican leadership's bill they felt that they could get it through. They might need some help from the president when the president tried to help, not because it was uh, a superior product, but because it was important politically. The conservative, the, 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 the moderates, some of whom were saying no, and some were prepared to hold their nose and vote yes with great fear. And it was the conservatives who said, nope, it doesn't go far enough. And every time they made a move to make it more conservative, you, you put more moderates at risk. And meanwhile, the Senate's over there saying, I don't know why you guys are doing this. So I'm not I, giving anybody a free pass. I'm just saying right. that the content and the strategy was driven more by Paul Ryan and the House Republicans. Remember, this happened weeks ago. The, right. <laughs> the White House has had like 30 people in the entire government. And so <laughs> it, it was it was it was. It was faulty strategy. It was yeah. faulty content, and it was an embarrassment. They're trying to f- see if there's a way to salvage it, which is why I say it's not quite dead. But it's also really, really right. complicated. It's not like there was an easy answer out there that that's what we need. That's the answer. Let's do it. There is no such answer. Right, right. Our well, tax reform is you know, we're going to see something similar if somebody gets carried away. The, 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 the House has their border-adjusted tax that they want. That's true. On the merits, not a horrible idea. It's just that it's a non-starter and right, very well, with complicated. That, 
with that, it, we, we've got six minutes left in the show, and I've got to close out the show real Glad quick. Glad I got to uh, chime in on that one. What's that? Glad I got to chime in on that one. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. So, you know, man, this is not like we're not going to cover this again. Really. It's tax reform. Hey, I will give you the belief. Don, the next hey, hey, Dan, that was your least objectionable input yet. Ah, good point. So, that being said, got to go around the horn. What didn't we cover? Uh, Dan Lipner, what didn't we cover other than the fact that I didn't get let you chime in on that last segment? Well, actually, Alan's kind of kind of started the point, and since I'm quite certain the president will quickly yell and scream and complain about the slowness of the Senate confirmation process for getting more people in his government other than the 20 people uh, in the White House running things, the current headcount is there are 473 positions that have no nomination from the White House. That is not the Senate going slow. That is the White House has not put forth a name. Just worth right. keeping that one out there. Yep, that, that makes sense. Again, it's, if you're not related, you're not part of the family, you're not part of the government. Hey, uh, Alan Moore, what didn't we cover this week? We didn't cover Justice Gorsuch's first uh, days on the court. He was, uh, he was quite active, apparently. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, we don't know how he's going to be, but uh, uh, this was uh, not a small uh, accomplishment. Uh, we've wiped out the, the the last use of of a filibuster. Well, it, it's too long to get into. The filibuster is not is not dead, even for nominations. It's just yeah. permanently weakened. Uh, we they can. can still cause great. You can still cause great delay and force uh, time, and uh, that may or may not be available. But uh, but but the sixty vote threshold is gone. Is that uh, Admiral Ken? What didn't we cover this week? The seventy-fifth uh, anniversary of the Doolittle Raid, uh, nineteen forty-one, December nineteen forty-one. A Japanese uh, hit us with a surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the U.S. was knocked back, uh, but uh, decided that uh, we will show you one. And a uh, flight of, uh, of uh, Air Force, Army, Air Corps bombers, B-25 Mitchell bombers took off um, and uh, flew over Japan and, and uh, caused minimal damage. But it was more of a, um, of a psychological blow that the, to the Japanese that they could be reached out and touched. Uh, it's, it's not two, two, two facts are probably not known. That, that most of those air crew of the 80 um, died at the hands of the Japanese, uh, summary, summary executions, a lot of them. Um, and, um, uh, and most importantly, when those bombers took off, they took off from Navy ships. What was the aircraft carrier? Uh, I think Admiral it was the Hornet. Hornet. I think it, it was, was the, Hornet. the Hornet. It was the Hornet. You are correct. Hey, uh, one of the stories we did not talk about, but we will be covering in the next couple of weeks, is in a hugely surprise move, <clears throat> British Prime Minister Theresa May called for early elections to basically stick her finger into the ground or to stick a flag into the ground and put her finger out to the elected or the uh, general voting public of Great Britain to say, look, you need us to lead. We're going to lead. And by the way, to all of our opposition, whether it's the SNP, whether it's 
the uh, Labor Party, whether who else it is, guess what? This is how we're going to show you where you can either get on or get off the bus, but we're driving the bus. Really ballsy move by Prime Minister Theresa May in calling elections. We're going to keep an eye on that because that's going to have implement that's going to have implications throughout Europe, and it's a very nationalistic move. The other thing we didn't cover that we're going to have to keep an eye on is President Erdogan in Turkey won by 52% of the vote, won brand new special powers as president, and went to a presidency instead of a parliamentary kind of hybrid system that they had. A lot of people saying that that nationalism is going to spread throughout Turkey, spread throughout Europe. That's not the last nationalistic move we see by heads of state. So that being said, on behalf of Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, Dan Lipner, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week. And yes, I promise you, we will broadcast from our new home at the National Press Club. We will all be together in the same room. I have already booked the room, and we are good to go. So we will see you next week live from the uh, National Press Club. You can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. Uh, you can follow us on Sidewire through Dan Lipner, myself, Admiral Ken, our contributors. And by the way, congratulations to John Allen and his book, Shattered. It just got released. We're going to talk to him next week, too. Have a great week, America. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.